Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two. It is season two, episode 17, and on today's podcast, I talk to scholar, soldier, anthropologist and academic, Professor Ail Ben-Ari, about the motivation and morale of people serving in mission formations in modern conflicts. Ail spoke to me from his home in Israel. Ail, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in motivation, military morale and mission formations? Okay. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for hosting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, to answer your question, <clears throat> I'm an anthropologist by trade, specifically a Japan anthropologist. But like all uh, men, certainly of my generation, I served uh, both conscription and then as a reservist. And when I returned from doing my PhD abroad in England, then uh, um, I joined a, uh, an, a, an elite infantry brigade as a uh, uh, personnel officer. Uh, and the first intifada erupted. And to make sense of my place, the place of Israelis in the intifada, that is facing a, a civilian rebellion, if you like, a civilian uh, uh, expression of resistance, I decided to study my own battalion. That came out in the book, Mastering Soldiers. So if you like, I used my anthropological skills to study my own unit. Now, that basically was the beginning of my uh, specialization, if you like, uh, in military things from an anthropological and sociological point of view. And I did a number of projects. And then the second intifada erupted. And with uh, members of the Israel Behavioral Sciences Department, these are military officers, we decided to study the, the IDF in the Second Intifada and uh, try to make sense of what was happening. Now, this was really interesting because um, when we started interviewing uh, platoon commanders, company commanders, especially battalion commanders, they were complaining all the time complaining that their organic unit was divided and then parts of it were sent off to other places. To put this in uh, you know, a bit abstract terms, all the organic units were constantly fragmented and uh, put together with other units into what I call uh, mission formation, special formation. Now, this is interesting because alongside these complaints, I found for example, interviewing a, um, an infantry battalion commander, that what were created were basically new organizational forms. So before going into a Palestinian town, there would be uh, three companies of his, or even two companies from his infantry battalion. To them would be seconded uh, a platoon or two of tanks, uh, engineers for bomb disposal, uh, interpreters for Arabic, as well as uh, intelligence uh, uh, officers who would, uh, uh, if you like, talk to the Palestinians once they've been stopped. 
as well as later in the Intifada, representatives of the IDF spokesperson, okay? And I found that the regular, if you like, uh, social scientific concepts related to cohesion, uh, uh, if you like, leadership, communication, and of course, motivation and morale, they took on a different form here. And we were looking, my friends and I, for these kind, for new ways of trying to analyze these uh, mission formation, okay? So this is second intifada. We began to develop a number of tools. I'll talk about them in a few minutes. And then uh, the, uh, uh, the wars in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan began. And I began to read mainly uh, biographies and autobiographies and histories and journalistic accounts of what was happening there. And I found that there as well, you had these uh, uh, processes of fragmentation of units and joining them in new kinds of formation. But in Iraq and Afghanistan, what I also found that very often they would be uh, joined to NGOs, civilian uh, NGOs, or members of, uh, for the Americans, the CIA or something like that. And uh, they would work together. If you look at the provincial reconstruction teams, they are a prime example of mission formation. And um, this brought about the question, and then here I'm leading directly to your question, of what holds them together. You know, you have people very diverse with different orientations, traditions, and so on. How do they hold together? And we found that among a number of factors, primary were uh, questions of, if you like, motivation and morale, the creation of trust, different types of trust, and, uh, if you like, leadership, or a certain type of leadership, I would say. So that's, if you like, my journey to uh, studying mission formation. So why are these organizational entities emerging now? And have they been, um, or have they, do they have history that we, we've not really looked at? Exactly. Um, I would say there are two answers to this. Uh, one is that historically you had these formations existing all the time. If you go back to World War II and you look at, uh, say, certainly division level and sometimes brigade level as well, you had the, all these uh, ad hoc temporary amalgamations for a specific mission and the, uh, uh, the organizational amalgamation entity would disappear after the mission was uh, finished. We, as, when I say we, military sociologists especially, and probably uh, your audience is mainly made up of historians, so uh, uh, I'm to blame as a sociologist, if I may. Um, what happened is that organizational theory had to develop to an extent that allowed us to, to see these temporary, ad hoc, flexible, tailor-made entities. Okay, that's one answer. The second answer, of course, is much more um, uh, in terms of the historical context that uh, wars are becoming much more complex than they were in the past. Part of the reason has to do with technology that allows different units or uh, at a scale, a division uh, today, uh, territory-wise, would probably cover uh, multiples of a division in World War II. But more than that, the development of new uh, weapon systems uh, alongside older weapons, the, uh, uh, the uh, complexity of 
civilians being brought into these kinds of entities. For example, civilian technicians, sometimes working with uh, uh, private contractors, sometimes working with NGOs, certainly, uh, for example, to bring food, humanitarian aid, and so on. What happens is that, uh, especially, I would say, uh, after World War II, and to an extent uh, since the end of the Cold War, you have you know, various American kinds of uh, labels that have been given to, to these kinds of conflicts, hybrid war, fourth generation, and so on. But what they all encapsulate is the complexity and the diversity of actors working on a specific mission. So from an analytical, an analytical point of view, the question then becomes one of how do these diverse, diversely composed entities uh, achieve coordinated, coherent collective action? That's, if you like, the puzzle. And uh, this has become important, as, as it has become important for uh, militaries out there. So it's become important for us, uh, I would say, scientists, social scientists, and probably uh, already contemporary historians uh, in terms of the analytical challenge that they uh, pose. So let's look at the difference between, I suppose, a traditional state armed force and a mission formation. What are the, what, what are the primary differences between the two? Okay, um, I'll put it in uh, simple, but I don't think simplistic terms. Organic units, certainly from the squad to the battalion level, and one could say also at the uh, brigade level, were, first of all, uh, based on the assumption of continuity, that the members may change, but the company has a continuity over the years, certainly a battalion in, in England, the regiments, and uh, so on. But more than that, the assumption behind the organic units was that it was organic, that something emerges there that enables the creation of cohesion, interpersonal uh, links, maybe friendship, not necessarily, I think, and um, that this type of uh, cohesion will allow uh, withstanding the friction of battle. Okay, so this was the assumption uh, uh, and uh, the idea also uh, was closely linked to a mechanistic assumption so that uh, uh, companies or battalions, the idea was that they were, if you like, sort of machines with replaceable tools. So, uh, sorry, replaceable parts. So if a, uh, I don't know, a platoon commander is taken out of action, somebody can just slot in and take over. And the idea of this, uh, if you like, mechanistic point of view was that everything was standardized within the organic unit. It knew how to uh, carry out certain uh, maneuvers or exercises, engage certain practices, and so on. That's one, okay? That's the, if you like, um, classic conception. In American military sociology, it's very often called the engineering model, okay? Uh, now, what happens today is that there are challenges that an organic unit alone cannot meet, okay? Take even uh, the, one of the, the examples that I study, I also do the Japanese military, and the la if you like, the triple disaster during disaster relief, the, uh, the organic units, they had uh, worked with uh, avalanches 
or flooding and things like that. But suddenly with this triple disaster, they found that they, they were thrust into a situation where they had to work closely with police, firefighters, um, medical staff, uh, a little bit later NGOs, local government, national government. And when the Americans stepped in, certainly uh, uh, very near the beginning, with foreign forces, something they haven't done before. And a little bit later, other militaries started sending uh, uh, various types of rescue missions. So they found themselves in working uh, and creating, if you like, uh, a sense of trust between the participants. Um, their leadership suddenly uh, uh, realized that they have to work in a different way. They just can't, they cannot just give an order, okay? Or, or explain the rationale and give, uh, and give an order. They had to persuade, they had to create alliances, coalitions, a little bit of what we would probably call uh, politicking. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, politicians' uh, uh, skills. And what, uh, uh, along with my colleagues, uh, Thomas Bond, he's uh, from Denmark, and Uzi Ben Shalom, another Israeli, we started calling them these uh, entities mission formation. And our argument was that you can analyze mission formations as entities among themselves. What does this mean? They have a structure, okay? Uh, they have uh, participants, like the organic uh, unit. There are certain processes that emerge under uh, uh, over time. And uh, um, they uh, are, if you like, goal-oriented or mission-oriented or task-oriented. But we can ask about each of these characteristics, how they differ from organic unit. Okay? So one assumption, which I mentioned before, was that all the participants know that this amalgamation will end, okay? Does this do anything to their, this is what interests you in the podcast, to their motivation? Does it, have, uh, uh, does it change anything in terms of their willingness and commitment uh, to join in this collective effort? How do you create this kind of willingness and commitment? Or are there divided loyalties? Are there different kinds of... Uh, organizational politics going on and so on. So this is the new, uh, uh, I would say, what we suggest is a new way to approach uh, the study of militaries today. So I suppose the question and the rationale for the podcast is, is the nature of motivation and morale different in these uh, new organizational mission formations from, quotes traditional military uh, organizations? Yes, um, but I would preface that uh, with something which is really important to, to, um, to note. Our argument is not that, is, is additive or cumulative. It's not that these mission formations have changed, something has changed sort of in a linear fashion. B has, uh, has uh, come after A. But rather what we find is that newer forms of motivation, uh, collective action and so on, are added to the older ones. So if you look at mission formation, very often, the first of all, they're composed of organic units. Organic units could be military units. It could be a, a, a firing squad of snipers outside the unit brought in, a bomb disposal uh, uh, squad. And for these, uh, the older forms of uh, morale and especially motivation still hold. 
in terms of uh, uh, leadership, a sense of uh, common fellowship developed over time, and these, if you like, classic ways of approaching uh, uh, cohesion, all right, and motivation. But here, first of all, in these mission formations, you have a diversity of actors, each one with a different time orientation, each one with a different expertise, each one, especially in multinational forces, with a different military tradition, a different organizational tradition. Very often, they have loyalties uh, to their home, if you like, uh, organic unit. So you may, have, you may get a battalion under your command that's from the, say, Royal Engineers, but they know that their career is dependent on the Royal Engineers, not on how they, they uh, act, if you like, within the mission formation. So that the way I would suggest, and this is, uh, it was a good opportunity to, uh, for you to ask me to participate in this podcast, so I had to sort of develop these ideas that I have. Uh, the way I like to approach it is through the idea of uh, psychological contract, or uh, sometimes it's called the implicit contract. Now, if you go to workplaces, um, you see that there are a set of, call them hidden expectations. Sometimes they're explicit between employers and employees about work time, about, uh, say, overtime, about what kind of work is considered acceptable, not acceptable. Um, about um, how you manage the family or the time between the family and the workplace and so on. It's called the psychological uh, contract or the uh, implicit contract. Now, if you go to mission formation, you see that if you have a very dominant core, say a, 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 a battalion of infantry with three companies and to which are added other companies, uh, other units, they are a little bit, a little bit like, uh, if you like, um, temporary staff in business firms. That is, the business firms hires or uh, gets them from uh, somewhere else. And these people have a different set of motivations. Very often, and here I will use uh, uh, differentiation between a transactional contract and a, uh, if you like, a relational contract. This, is com this comes out of the study of uh, contracts, especially the social side of it. A transactional contract is very much um, uh, one of, uh, related to material goods. What do I get out of it? So this is the way temporary staff very, uh, very often uh, create their ties with uh, the business firms. Uh, a relational contract, by contrast, is uh, much more flexible. So that if you have, uh, say, an organic unit uh, and your leader has been treating you very well, you will make an extra effort because of the relationship between you, between you, <coughs> excuse me, and the uh, and the leader. So that um, it's in 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 mission formations, leaders have to manage both more transactional and more uh, uh, relational contracts. Now. This is interesting because um, these motivations have to be cultivated. And this is probably leading on to your next question, okay? And the question is, how do you cultivate the ties so that um, a, a modicum of trust is created between leaders and followers, but no less important, trust between the constituent units and 
the assumption is, or the, the proposition is, that if trust is created, this will enable people, if you like, to, uh, to uh, get their job done and contribute to higher motivation. Okay? Now, uh, the thing that uh, we found really interesting, not, not that surprising, is that the key is good relationships. Okay? And I'll give uh, a few examples. Okay? In the second intifada, we interviewed uh, sniper squads. That's a, a separate project that I did. And snipers were very often in teams of two, sometimes two teams, seconded to other units. And uh, we asked them, uh, what is the most important thing for you when you join this unit for a specific mission? And they would, the answer, in ver- in, they would use the word sharing. Okay? Now, this is something which comes out also in uh, Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams. Which, about, which is about the special mission formation. Uh, I think the formal uh, name is Joint uh, Special Operations. Uh, I don't remember. It has uh, all the, the, the acronyms that American military people love. But his point, again, was sharing. Now, what does sharing consist of? I would say a number of things. First of all, it's... Um, a sharing of, uh, uh, if you like, living conditions so that the people from the outside get the same food, get the same, um, uh, provided they can, the same uh, allowance for sleeping as the core of the organic, of the uh, uh, mission formation. But more important are two other points. One is uh, sharing information. Number one, and uh, I have Canadian colleagues who studied uh, information sharing in Iraq and Afghanistan among the allies. And this was one of the uh, most uh, strongest predictors of cohesive action. So if you create sort of coteries with their own knowledge, not willing to share with others, this basically leads to lowered motivation and to uh, impeding the achievement of military aims or tasks or missions. More than that, there is a, a, a sharing of, uh, of um, your voice being heard. Stanley McChrystal in his book, and I know it's a, it's a book for marketing and you know, uh, furthering his career and so on, but, but that, he has some, I think, very valid points there. That is, the voices of even the minor actors must be heard. Because if your voice is heard, then you find you feel part of the team. You feel part of this, uh, uh, if you like, uh, goal-oriented uh, um, formation. And of course, this contributes to your motivation and willingness, and, and so on. The last point of sharing, especially at the tactical level, is shared burdens, which means two things. First of all that everybody lives under the same conditions. And this is true of uh, organic units with uh, leaders, uh, uh, say, certainly at the uh, company and uh, platoon level, you know, sharing the, the same food, the same living conditions as the soldiers. But it also means sharing uh, in terms of risks. And this is uh, uh, something that uh, I learned uh, through two uh, Swedish uh, friends, Lotta and uh, Peter Tilberg. They did, uh, they collected 
uh, accounts of uh, the Swedes in uh, uh, in uh, uh, the Afghanistan-Iraq uh, wars, and they found that when the Swedish advisors uh, were willing to put their lives at risk with the Afghanis, then this allowed uh, uh, the mission to take place because it showed a, 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 a mutual commitment between them. And it raised the motivation of the Afghanis to participate uh, with the Swedes. Okay, So it's these relationships and a, a sense of, uh, uh, I would say, um, shared willingness. One more point I would make. Are we okay with time? Okay. Uh, is at the tactical level. Now, this is really interesting. This is part of... Um, my work with uh, my friends uh, from the, the former officers is at the tactical level. You're about to go into a, a Palestinian a refugee camp to uh, arrest a, uh, I don't know, or to take out um, a, uh, a group of, uh, of uh, Palestinian, what the Israelis uh, define as terrorists. Okay? Now, this is to begin in an hour. Within that hour, you get the snipers, you get the bomb disposal squad, and so on. And the question is, how do you create trust in this kind of really um, short-span mission? And the answer is uh, something which uh, Amer the American uh, uh, social psychologists call, uh, Americans call them white, probably vague in German, call swift trust. That is, you... The time pressure forces you to create trust very, very quickly. And the way you do it is that um, um, the initial um, interaction is based on stereotypical knowledge. So, you know, the armored guys are always heavy and technology-oriented and so on. So your initial interaction with them is based on that kind of uh, uh, stereotypical knowledge. And as the interactions uh, uh, emerge, you can change that kind of it, the stereotypical knowledge doesn't have to stay. The second are I found absolutely uh, amazing are mini simulations. I'll give an example. We interviewed a uh, an armored battalion, sorry, uh, an infantry battalion commander in the Second Intifada, and we asked him this question: How how can you trust these people? He says the week before he got a uh, uh, an armored platoon assigned to him. And he said, I just stood there and I saw how the platoon commander, um, if you like, oversaw the offloading of the tanks. He says, through this, you can see his already his command style, okay? Whether he's uh, in charge, whether the soldiers trust him, and so on. So you have a whole um, set of mini simulations. So the even, this even goes for the mission itself. So the commanders say, okay, we, we go here and there and there, and the constituent units will say, our expertise is best used in this way. You can't use the tanks in this way and so on. So they, it, it's, it's a mental kind of simulation that goes on as well. Okay. So uh, you've touched on it already, but how does this um, pose challenges for leaders, for motivating uh, members of their team and maybe other teams as well? Okay. Um, if we understand the diversity of the constituent uh, participating units and individuals, uh, I think a, a, a good way to understand the, uh, the role of leadership is as centers of cognitive, 
emotional and social gravity, okay? I would say in a non-trivial sense, leadership becomes even more important. Now, when I say leadership, again, it's a cumulative or additive model. The older forms of leadership are still important, leading by way of example, uh, uh, even trivial things like talk, you know, uh, projecting self-confidence and things like that. This continues to be important. But I would basically say uh, a number of points. First of all, in these entities, it becomes uh, contingent even on leadership to provide the meanings, the common goal, that is to create a common frame for everybody to understand what their mission is. It doesn't mean sameness between them. There could be differences, but they must understand the common frame within which everything uh, takes place. More than that, um, this comes out time and time again in Iraq and Afghanistan and in the Second Intifada, is that they need many diplomatic and political skills. They need to persuade, to negotiate, to listen, to build consensus, and not only to rely on their formal authority. Why? Because the constituent uh, uh, units, uh, to put it in, uh, in stark terms, uh, don't necessarily owe anything to the leader. Okay, They have other orientations. They may even have other uh, hidden agendas. So that's why it's a more a form of coalition building even at the tactical level of coalition building towards, uh, if you like, moving this entity towards uh, um, the achievement of the common goal. And I suppose one thing that, that I, I've been wondering, can individuals be trained, prepared and acculturated for to, to tasks and roles in mission formations? Or is, but is it by their very nature often very, very difficult? Okay. Um, I have a number of answers. Um, the first one is, it's sort of a, a bit of a tangent, but not that much. With other friends, I've carried out a, a largest project on special operations forces. Now, if you think of special operations forces, certainly today, they almost never, despite Hollywood movies, okay, they almost never operate alone. They're always part of what, you, you, what we call these mission formations, these configurations. Now, special operations um, operatives, they learn to cooperate. They learn to be part of these wider uh, um, uh, configurations. For example, working with, uh, uh, if you like, local uh, militias, you need special operations operatives, need the skills of persuasion and, uh, sorry, uh, negotiation and creating alliances and uh, things, excuse me, things like that. Now, where do they acquire these skills? And here the answer is also for other parts of them. The first one is training and simulations. The more a soldier, a commander, certainly at the tactical level, afterwards it's, it's much simpler, the more they train within um, joint, certainly at the beginning, joint formation, the more they train and simulate, say, for example, working with uh, civilians, working with the Air Force. Today, we know that company commanders, certainly in some militaries, can directly be in contact with pilots and so on. The more this training and simulation takes place, the greater the skills uh, that they acquire. That's one. The 
The second, of course, is uh, their cumulative experience. So the more missions they participate in these kinds of uh, formations, uh, the easier it is for them afterwards to uh, to link into uh, other newer units or in a different mission and uh, and uh, so on. I can tell you about the Israeli military now that um, and this is no secret. I'm not going to uh, to let you know if Israel has a nuclear bomb or doesn't. I have no idea. But according to foreign, the foreign press, it does. I have no idea. Okay. But um, according, uh, this is open. We have uh, reports in the uh, the uh, newspapers, in the media. The Israeli military is now basing almost all its training, beyond its basic training, on these kinds of uh, multiple formations, constantly training not only infantry and armor, but infantry and armor and uh, engineering. Uh, certainly in regard to uh, the entry into Palestinian villages, simulating uh, uh, working with uh, interpreters or working with uh, intelligence uh, operatives along with them and so on. So I think this is a direction certainly that the Israeli military is going in uh, towards, and I would guess other militaries as well. Now, my last question is probably you're going to answer no to this, but does coercive discipline, as we understand it, maybe in traditional militaries, have a role in shaping behavior in mission formations? I think only for the organic unit. Okay, You know, uh, if I'm a a Dutch officer and I misbehave under Stanley McChrystal, okay, to give a a concrete example, maybe I'll get into trouble with my home... uh, with a Dutch military. But the coercive discipline works basically in the most strongest sense within the organic unit. And they very often make up the mission formation. I suppose one question I should ask, are there examples of mission formations actually failing in their task because because they people become demotivated and and fail to act in, in a cooperative way? Okay. Um, you do have, uh, I think, uh, these kinds of cases. They're not often uh, reported about, okay, because the military is not, uh, uh, I would say, <laughs> not so willing. Um, uh, I'll give an example of a failure, which is the attempted um, American mission to release the kidnapped uh, people in Tehran. This was the first large-scale uh, mission formation away from the shores of America. In it participated uh, the Air Force, uh, the Army, intelligence units, the CIA, and so on. And it was a failure, basically. I think it's in the wake of this failure that the uh, emphasis on special operations forces, their professionalization, their ability to work with other units was created. So I think that's an example of a failed mission formation, certainly a, a strong one. And my final question is, where can people learn more about mission formations and your work? Okay, this is the self-advertising part of the podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, there's one article that I published. It's rather uh, sociologically heavy, but it, it, it includes all the things that I've been talking about and more. It appeared, it appeared uh, two years ago, um, and it's called Mission Formations. Uh, compositional and operation flexibility, and it appears in the uh, a journal called Strategic Assessment, put out by the Israel uh, uh, National 
it, sorry, Institute of National uh, of, of INSS. INSS is good enough, okay? And um, it's volume two, okay? And that gives a very good uh, uh, picture. The other is an edited book that I edited with uh, two friends, Thomas Bond and Uzi Ben Shalom, called Military, Military Mission Formations. And that includes not only our uh, introduction and epilogue, but also, uh, importantly, a number of case studies uh, by people um, uh, of various uh, uh, empirical examples. Al, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Tom. I enjoyed it.